0: All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, it is with grateful hearts that we come to this place, Lord, that we come to worship you in reverent worship, Lord, to open your word, knowing that your word is all that we need to live well for you. So, Lord, this morning, as we open your word, and as I share the message that you have shared with me, Lord, I pray that it will be used mightily of you, to touch your people in a way that uh, glorifies you and edifies each of them. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at chapter 3 this morning, it's good to kind of remember what we've learned when Ben and Anthony last taught us from chapter 2, right? So in verses 6 to 15, we saw um, how incredible the salvation is that God has granted to each of us. In verses 16 to 23, we were instructed not to allow ourselves to be sidelined by the rules and traditions that some say will allow us to overcome the temptations of the flesh and be righteous before God. We were uh, properly and consistently reminded that only faith in Jesus will atone for our sins, that our actions and good works are the fruit of our faith, not the reason that we've been accepted as righteous by the holy God. So as we start chapter 3 today, we will see that Paul's focus changes He's going to transition from telling the believers what they should not do, specifically be swayed by false teachers, and instead he's going to begin focusing on what it is that he wants them to do, what they should do. So in our passage this morning, we will see two things that Paul commands believers to do. First, to seek, and second, to set. Seek and set. Two small words that have very powerful meanings and impacts. So let's read together Colossians three verses one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden in God. When Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory You can be seated. So in verse 1, we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So to begin this chapter, Paul is not questioning the salvation of his readers. When you read it, it almost sounds like that, right? If then you have been saved. But this isn't the first time in this letter that Paul has phrased a statement that way about their salvation. That sounds like it could be that he's questioning whether or not they're saved. And I just want to make it very clear that that is not the case. Paul has previously made it abundantly clear that those who are entrusting in Jesus for their salvation are, in fact, those who have been raised with Christ. So keep in mind that what Paul is doing here is combating false teaching. And one way that you do that is to just simply remind people of the truth. And that's what he's doing. He's reminding them who they are as God's people. He's reminding them about the truth of themselves. You know, it's good for each of us to do that too. It's good for us to remind ourselves every day of the gospel. It's good for us to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. And you know what else is good? Reminding someone else, right? If you're a believing husband married to a believing wife, I bet you'll find it very encouraging to her to remind her who she is from time to time. Right When life is difficult and when we're struggling, it's good to remember who you are. But that's also why we have helpmates to come alongside us, whether you're the husband or you're the wife. Come alongside your spouse every now and then and remind them who they are in Christ. So having confirmed their identity in Christ, Paul moves on to begin giving his audience direction. And the first direction he gives them, and thus to us, is to seek. Now, the words the Holy Spirit gives Paul here were not just written to those readers, they're written to us as well. So, this is how we are commanded to walk. So, what does it mean to seek something? I looked it up. Some synonyms include weaker, more common phrases like find, try for, or go for. But I think that there's a stronger meaning here. So allow me to illustrate what I think he means by this. So I grew up in a very close-knit family, very large family. When we would get together with all my aunts and uncles, which happened a couple of times a year, we might have 30 cousins running around all over the place, right? And when we got together, we liked to play games. And my favorite game of all was hide and seek, right? We usually met at the home of one of my uncles who owned a big farm. And so we had a huge area to play in, and I used to love it, right, when somebody else was it, because I'd find myself a nice, comfortable spot, maybe in the tack room in the barn or up in the hayloft or somewhere crazy. I might even get up in the attic. I was not going to be found, right? I'd find myself a comfortable place. I'd just kind of hunker down in there, maybe take a nap, but I'm waiting, right? Anybody who's played hide-and-seek knows what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for them to give up, right? I'm waiting to hear, "Ali, Ali, and free, Right? Whoever's it is weak. They can't find me. (laughs) That means I win. They lose, right? In my juvenile mind, that made me better than them, right? So what happens when it's my turn to be the seeker, right? I just told you what happens. If you don't find everybody, you're a loser. (laughs) I refused to be a loser, Right. I refused to ever give up because that would mean that I admitted defeat, that I had failed. And I did not want that to happen. So when I was searching for you, I was seeking you. There was not a stone that I would not leave unturned. Didn't matter how long it took. Take three naps. I'm going to eventually find you. Right. I wasn't just looking for you. I wasn't just trying to find you. I was hunting you, right? That's how I was seeking, right? I was a beast when it came to seeking somebody that I wanted to find, right? That's how the word seek is used here, right? We aren't supposed to go halfway looking for Christ. We are to seek Him. We are to seek the things that are above. Scriptures that cross-reference with this one, Philippians 3.14, And Paul says, I press on, right? He presses on. He doesn't just go forward. He presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that he was zealous in his desire to please God. He was even willing to kill people who he thought were teaching heresy. Galatians 1.14 tells us that Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And folks, that zeal did not die off when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and told him who he was. Paul was a man who passionately sought God. And that's what he's encouraging us to do here. You can see that same emphasis in the Old Testament scriptures, such as Isaiah 64.7. When Isaiah is lamenting over the condition of his people, he says, there is no one, no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. Isaiah is describing how we should be seeking the Lord. The action verbs here are robust. They create a picture of humbling yourself. Of driving yourself forward with effort, with refusing to be lazy, and instead doing whatever is necessary to get your hands on what you're seeking. And when you get your hands on it, you hold on to it with the intent of never letting it go. That is how we are to seek the Lord. Psalms 105.4 says, Seek the Lord, seek His presence continually notice when we're supposed to seek the Lord continually all the time does that mean that we don't do anything else right does that mean that we just kind of cloister ourselves and just spend our time in our Bibles and don't do anything else no no that's not what God has for us the Lord has given us all tasks and they must all be accomplished whether you are a stay-home mom or the president of the United States or a fighter pilot or a retired... It doesn't matter. He's given you things to do, and we are to do those things heartily as unto him. But the key is how we do them. There's room for being prayerful in everything you do. For instance, when you're just riding around in your car, maybe you're going from point A to point B with a purpose. What's on the radio? Are you just killing time listening to whatever's there? I used to love to listen to sports radio, Right? I didn't even care what team they were talking about. But, man, if they were talking about the Cowboys, there was n- i I'd go real slow. I'm the guy in the right lane that everybody on the freeway is going, what's wrong with that guy? Sorry, I don't want to get there too early. I'm listening to something valuable, right? That is wasting time, right? What about, instead of that, what if I was listening to God-honoring music, right? Worshiping, maybe even singing along with it, right? What if I was spending that time listening to good teaching? right there are ways to spend that time where you can continually be focusing on the lord and seeking him and i want to encourage you not to lose those opportunities what about time you spend with your christian friends when you're together do you talk about the lord or does it sound a whole lot like the same time you spend with unbelievers is it pretty much the same conversations take advantage of those opportunities to seek the Lord. Uh, We want to encourage one another to intentionally be seeking the presence of the Lord because we are called to continually and passionately seek him. So how do we do it? How do we go about seeking the presence of the Lord? By spending time in his word. In Deuteronomy, we can read about the emphasis that Moses puts on spending time and studying the word. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. His point is that there is nothing more important to meditate on than the word of God. So whether you're playing, working or simply relaxing, do all as for the Lord and you will find yourself continually seeking God. Things above. So the next question, as I see it, is what are the things above? Keep in mind that setting our minds on the things above is an instruction from God. That's what he has just told us to do. So it might be a good idea to know what those things are, right? There's a gentleman by the name of Mark Mano. And I like what he says when he talks about that, that term, things above. To quote him. Appropriately, the, the term is appropriately open-ended, and so cannot be pinned down completely. After all, how can it be possible to put heaven in the words of any language? However, one thing is clear. He cannot mean the furniture or physical treasures of heaven, as if Paul wants us to yearn for material things. That would contradict everything that he's been saying. Instead, Paul's phrase must include the things that make the heavenly realms so wonderful, joyful, and magnetic. At the very least, this means the wonder of spending Christ, spending time with Christ, the one we love and adore. Now, later in this chapter, we're going to discuss a list of things that uh, we are to put on. And that list includes a lot of things that we can expect to be listed as things above. But for now, I want to limit our thoughts to the most important thing above, and that is Christ. Paul is encouraging us to seek Christ continually with a passion that demonstrates that there is nothing more important to us in the entire world, not in order to earn our salvation. We know we can't be good enough to do that. But because it is how we show him how grateful we are, for what it is that he has done for us. That love for him and what he has done for us drives us to share the gospel with others. So others may know about his love, his kindness, his compassion, his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, and every other aspect of him that we have all grown to know and to love. It is our seeking after him that results in us demonstrating all that he is to the world around us. A world that needs above all, all other things to know who Jesus is. And that they need to know that he is seated at the right hand of God. Paul finishes this sentence with the phrase, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So why does he do that? He's reminding us, his readers and us, of the glorious fact that Jesus is in fact seated at the right hand of God. That he has defeated death. And that he is seated at the right hand of God. He's giving us a reason to seek Jesus. If Jesus was not resurrected, would there be any reason whatsoever for us to seek him? Absolutely not. So why does it matter to us, right, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God? I mean, it happened a long time ago, right? First of all, if Christ is not seated at the right hand of God, all of his disciples those who saw him and witnessed to him were either liars or duped. Plain and simple. It would mean that those who claimed that they witnessed Christ's resurrection died for a lie. That would require a conspiracy on par with nothing anybody's ever seen before. Right? In law enforcement, I learned very quickly, Right, if somebody does something and you can identify that second person, You got them, right, because nobody can keep their mouth shut that long. Two people who who enter into a conspiracy, once you get a hold of one of them and you start talking to them, they realize I could soon be facing the burden of a long time in prison. I don't want that to happen. So they were real quick to want to be the first one to unburden themselves because if they know that the other guys in the other room, they're thinking to themselves, is he talking? And if he's talking, what's going to happen to me? I better go first, right? Because we're reminding them how good it would be to share the truth and increase their chances, right? That's how that works. But that's what happens when they have a lot to lose. They still fall apart. There are a whole lot more than two people involved in this one. There is no way, none whatsoever, that they could have possibly stuck to that story all the way to their deaths. And we don't know what happened to everybody who saw Jesus resurrected, but we do know that of those who did, not many of them got to live to old age, right? Not many of them got to die of natural causes. They died brutally. What does it take to stick with a story to that point? A complete and total belief. Folks, those disciples, they did not die in vain. They did not carry on a lie. Right In the case of those guys, there was nothing for them to gain by continuing in this lie. In fact, all they had to do was say they were lying, and they'd have probably been greatly rewarded because the Jewish authorities wanted nobody to believe that Christ had been resurrected. And their insistence on it put them in harm's way. All they had to do was say, my bad, I lied. If they could have gotten one to do that and paraded him in front of other people, they could have done so much damage to the Christian faith but those men didn't do that didn't happen those men held on to what they saw and they were faithful second the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God is the sole source of hope for the believer if Christ is not seated at the right hand of God it means that there is no resurrection from the dead let that set in for a second. It would me, what would it mean? It would mean that the world is right when they say there's nothing beyond this life. It would mean that they're right when they say we need to leave, live every day just like it was your last day because there will be nothing else. They'd be absolutely right. Why wouldn't we? Right? If Christ is not resurrected, why would we live lives faithful to his calling? There's no reason to. Christ's resurrection is the source of our hope. It would mean that the world is right when they say there is no absolute truth. It would mean the world is right when they say we have no business calling a sinful world to att- to, to uh, repentance. It would mean there's no standard of right and wrong. That means that it would be justified for everybody to do whatever was right in their own eyes. It would also mean that might would be right, right? If I'm stronger than you and I want what you have, I get to set the standard, I'm taking it, right? That's where we would be, and that's scary. But as scary as that is, there's something even scarier. If Christ were not seated at the right hand of God, we can read in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 to 6, which says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If Jesus is not resurrected, we have no mediator. Right? Let that sit in for a minute. If Jesus is not resurrected... Everyone who has placed their faith in him has done so in vain. And to quote Paul, if Christ is not seated at the right hand of God, we are of all people most to be pitied. As believers, we have placed our trust in him, and if he is not seated at the right hand of God, we are not forgiven we are still in our sins. Our sins that God can and will not overlook, cannot, will not overlook, are still being held against us. If Christ is not seated at the right hand of God, we face the wrath of God, and we will endure eternal condemnation. But... Praise God, that is not the truth. The truth is that Jesus is resurrected because he is seated at the right hand of God, and because of that, the penalty for our sins, the penalty for sins of believers, has been paid. And for that, we give him thanks and praise. And finally, The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God means that he will keep his promise to come back again. And what an occasion that'll be. When Jesus was here the first time, he came as a humble baby. He lived humbly. He lived perfectly to become that sacrifice that we needed. However, when he returns, it won't be the same way. When he returns, he will return as a mighty warrior here to punish those who refused salvation. Revelation 19:11 11-16 paints a picture of Christ's return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's not here to be peaceful. and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sound like somebody coming humbly? Nope. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ returns to punish those who are still in sin, it will mean utter terror for them those who ignore the offer of salvation, that opportunity to believe in Christ will be over. And if you have not taken advantage of it, he's coming for you. If you're hearing this and not trusting in Christ for your salvation, the debt for your sins is still coming due. And you do not want to be responsible for paying it. The debt is greater than you can imagine because the sin is greater than you ever believed it could be. And you cannot declare bankruptcy to get out of what you owe. The debt will be paid in full, either by Christ and the sacrifice he made or by you. I told you, seek is a short word, but it's powerful So now we're going to move on to the second command of Paul, which is to set. Open your Bibles again with me, and I won't have you stand up this time. Colossians 3, we will read verses 2 and 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I looked up again, set, right? And the synonyms for set include words like firm, determined, and resolute. And based on the way this passage has started, I think it's safe to say that set here is used in a way that includes all of these synonyms. In the example I used earlier, playing hide and seek with my cousins, my mind was set on finding every single one of them. Nothing less than complete Success was acceptable. I was determined and firmly resolute, resolved, firmly resolved, that not one of them would escape me. This command is every bit as urgent. The Lord intends for us to resolutely set our minds on things that are above. It is by seeking that we understand what the things that are above are it is by setting our minds on the things that are above that we are able to live for Christ. One reveals, the other one shows us how we are to live. And that's what we're going to focus on now is the setting. Scott Hubbard wrote, Our minds are most full of heaven when they are most full of Christ. So what does it mean to set our minds on the things above? It means to set our minds on Christ. Christ. Now, many of you may start your day with a little quiet time, right? Just you, the Word of God, maybe a cup of uh, coffee, a cup of tea, whatever you like to do, right? And you spend time with the Lord. And hopefully, if you've been to Sunday school recently, you've got a psalm open and you're praying through it, right? Those are wonderful, wonderful times. That is the best possible way to set your minds on things above to start your day. But then what happens? Where do your eyes go when you're done reading and praying? Do you turn your full attention to what lies ahead for the day and how you're going to address everything without including Christ in that equation? The same God that you just spent this time in worship, are you including him in how it is that you plan to move forward through your day? There's nothing wrong with turning your attention to what you've got to do. Again, God has called us to do things. It is up to us. We are to work heartily as for the Lord. You're going to read that later in this same chapter. But let me encourage you to keep one eye upward as you're doing so, so that you can effectively glorify God in your work. Because your mind is set on things above, it will impact how you go about doing what God has called you to do. When our minds are set on things above, they can't be set on things on the earth. However, that does not mean that we neglect the responsibilities that God has given us. There's an old statement credited to Oliver Wendell Holmes and it says some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. There's some truth to that, unfortunately. There are Christians now and there always have been Christians in the past who will take the, their serious pursuit of the things of God and use it as an excuse to cloister themselves from the world not engage with the community, just kind of put themselves over here. So all they have to do is study the word. That's all they're going to do. Those people are of no earthly good. Why are they doing it? What's the point? You can know all those things, but if you're not engaging with the culture around you, if you're not engaging with your brothers and sisters in church, why are you doing it? What's the point? I like what C.S. Lewis said. If you read history you will find that the Christians who did most of this, the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the older world that they have become so ineffective in this. Consider John Newton, a man whose mother shared the gospel with him from a very young age, but whose life was not changed until he was freed from the physical bonds of slavery. Did you guys know John Newton was actually a slave in Africa for a while? I learned that this last three months while I was working on this. He was actually a slave in Africa. He was saved immediately after that. But despite his salvation, he continued on in the slave trade as the captain of a slave ship. Why? Because in his culture, that was acceptable. He even documented in his journal that he gave thanks that he was blessed to have. And I quote, an easy and credible way of life. Close quote. That's what he thought of slavery. Although he was saved, he continued to work in that industry until the Holy Spirit convicted him of his role in that despicable trade and changed his heart to make him an effective champion of change. Contributing? To its abolishment in England. Men who have their minds set on things above are effective on earth. Men, if you want to be effective in your homes, if you want to be effective in your workplace, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ. Setting our minds on Christ creates opportunities for us to be used to his glory. You see, it's not just famous people that God uses to his glory either. God uses men, like, men and women like Alan E.D. Lewis, Matt and Amy Koontz, right? These people who travel thousands of miles to train pastors in their own homeland so that they can share the gospel or that share the gospel in lands where people may have never heard it or never seen it lived out. But you know what? Those aren't the only people he uses. He uses people like us, me, and you. And we don't all do great big things. But we all have a chance. If our minds are set on him, we will see those opportunities to do the small things, like sharing the gospel with somebody, right? Like fighting abortion, like giving a mom who's got a house full of kids and just needs a little bit of a break a chance to go somewhere and have lunch while you watch the kids for them. Maybe what you can do is clear your schedule and take somebody to a doctor's appointment, right? All these things are glorifying to God, and they're edifying to your brothers and your sisters in Christ. But it only happens when we have our minds set on things above. We don't set our minds on things above to earn salvation. We never could. We would never be good enough. But because we want to reflect the love, compassion, mercy, and grace of Christ and what it is that He's done for us. And we want to reflect it to those around us. So to quote Mr. Hubbard again, what does it mean to be heavenly minded? Not merely to live then and there, but to live now in the light of then, here in the light of there. You see the difference? He identifies numerous activities that will help us set our minds on the things above. And I've boiled it down to three. First, recognize that our roots are firmly planted in heavenly soil. Verses 3 and 4, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So notice the verb tenses. In verse 3, you have died, past tense. Is hidden, present tense. Will be with him, future tense. It's all locked up, folks. If you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, you have died to sin and your salvation is securely established. Remember that. That's where your roots need to be. That truth will allow you to stop identifying yourself as a condemned person, and it will energize you to be effective for the Lord's kingdom. Second thing you can do, develop heavenly habits. So how do we do that? How do we develop these heavenly habits? By spending time in in the Word, in prayer and in corporate worship. Corporate worship. I don't mean just be present, right? That's a good starting spot. Very glad when you're here. But don't miss the opportunity to fully engage in the worship. Don't miss the opportunity to encourage your brothers and sisters in who they are in Christ. When you're reading your word, don't just read the passage and close your Bible and say, yep, check that off for today. Read it meditate on it look up the words you don't know memorize it these are how we are seeking God remember our purpose here right we are seeking God we are setting our minds on the things above when you're digging into the word do it with a passion that simply will not be deterred be relentless when you read dig into it set your minds on seeking God when you're praying Don't just pray the same prayers over and over. I find myself doing that way too often, right? When you're praying, don't make it rush thing. Just take the time to pray what's in your heart. If you have set your mind on Christ, pray what's in your heart. Pray the scriptures, right? Mean what it is that you're doing. Seek God with a passion. And the third thing, The third way to set our minds on Christ is to retreat to things above throughout the day. When you leave your quiet times, you will have to do things, right? God has given us all tasks to do with, and he wants us to work as unto him. However, make sure you're guarding where your mind goes when you have downtime. Because when we retreat to the word of God, our actions will reset our focus on reflecting the love and compassion of our Savior. So another question, what does it look like practically when our minds are set on things above? Like the example of Newton, it means that our lives are changed. And like Newton, we may find that the things that we felt were acceptable because the culture says so are not. And the Lord will reveal sin, the sin of our behavior and may even allow us to become advocates for its abolition. It means that we recognize that those who are not saved are, in fact, still made in the image of God, just like believers are. And we want to share the consequences of their sin with them. We want to share the gospel. We don't turn our backs on them because they're lost. We don't give up on them, right? We don't ever stop reaching out to them with the truth of the gospel, even if it means they may be slapping our hands. The culture today will tell you that it's not loving to set a standard of right and wrong. Our culture will tell us that it's nobody's place to tell someone that what they are doing will incur the wrath of God. But tell me, please, how is it possibly loving to lead someone to believe that the sin they are in does not have dire consequences? Years ago, I don't think they're still here, but there were there was a, a comedy team, two people. They performed at the Rio. They weren't believers. One of them actually did a YouTube video. And in that YouTube video, he was talking about sharing the gospel. And what he said is, if you believe the message of the gospel to be true, you have to absolutely hate people in order not to be willing to share it with them. There's some truth to that, folks. If you believe what you say you believe while you're sitting in that chair right now, how do you possibly not share that truth with somebody that you know is destined to go to hell if the Lord doesn't change their heart? And how will they hear it if you don't share it? This whole line of, first I'm going to i I'm gonna display the gospel, and if I have to, I'll use words. No, use your words. Culture has that right. Use words. Your words. Share the gospel. But how? How do you share the gospel with somebody? You do it humbly. You don't beat them up with it. You remember who you were before God drew you to Himself. And you acknowledge the fact that you're not perfect. And in fact, the only righteousness in you is there simply because it is a gift from God. So as I prepare to close today, let me ask you one more time to turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians 3. This time we're going to look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. <sighs> That's awesome. Everybody's still sitting down. I don't think you guys caught what I said. Let me say that again. Right? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him In glory, right? That applies to us. If you are trusting Christ for your salvation, that applies to you. Praise God, (laughs) right? But it doesn't apply to everybody. If you are not trusting Christ for your salvation, you are not going to spend the eternity in the presence of a loving and happy God, wrapped in his embrace forever, right? That's not going to happen for you. Why is that? Why doesn't God allow everyone into heaven? To understand the answer to that question, one has to have an idea about the significance of sin and the holiness of God. I told you earlier, your sin is much worse than you ever imagined it could be. You cannot stand before a holy God with one sin on your record. Do you understand that? You see, God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. He cannot and will not simply ignore, overlook, or excuse sin. It offends his holiness and righteousness. And when I say offends, right, Um Don't think about the world the way the world thinks about offense. I think it offended about everything, right? That word that word has been watered down. You don't want to offend a holy God. He still knows exactly what that word means, and His punishment for it meets that standard. Sin must be atoned for. Perfect holiness and righteousness are required. For us to be in his presence. As you can read in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done. Don't start trying to put stuff on either side of the scale. It only takes one sin. To put you in that category Paul was talking about. Where he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you believe, because if you do, I need to know, because I want to come talk to you. If you believe you have never committed one sin in your entire life, raise your hand. What does that tell you? There ain't any hands up. You don't even have to look around. I can tell you, there's not a hand up. (laughs) Right? Folks, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're sitting in this room and you are not trusting Christ for your salvation, know that's where you are. Know that you are currently facing the wrath of an angry God because sin angers God and you are in it. The good news is that Jesus did, in fact, die to pay the price for the sins of those who seek Him and trust Him for their salvation. And unlike the young me who would hide with the intent of never being found and find great joy and frustrating those who were seeking me, Jesus is not trying to conceal himself from those who are who he has called, those who seek him. So if you are hearing me today, and you have not trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, you need to know that you will not spend eternity with Jesus as the saved will. Rather, you will spend eternity in a place of perpetual torment. If you have bought into this cultural philosophy that approves of creating a God of your own, one that justifies or excuses your sin, one that places you at the center of all things, you are not trusting in Jesus for your salvation. If you have bought into the false teaching that Jesus is love and he just wants you to be happy, regardless of whether or not your source of joy offends his holiness, you have bought the vile sin that is straight out of hell. Please, open the Bible yourself. Read it. See what God says. Don't, stand, don't let somebody stand up here or anywhere else and tell you what the Bible says. Read it. Open it. That's why we go verse by verse through our teaching. We want you to see that we are not preaching to you about our own agendas. We're sharing the word of God with you as it is written. Understand, these words are the exact same words God would tell you if he walked up to you and spoke to you. This is his revelation of himself. Understand the significance of it. Open it. Read it. Dig into it. Spend time in it. Seek God in his name. Word. Understand this. If you are not saved, you do not need to be perfect to come to Him. You just need to know that you are not perfect and that perfection, Christ's perfection, is required. By the grace of God, there is hope even for the imperfect. Know that regardless of what you have done in the past, God will forgive you when you seek him in repentance and turn to him for salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come forward and share your word. And Lord, I pray that you will use this word, even regardless of the mistakes I may have made here, Lord, in the delivery. I pray that the truth of your word, knowing, Lord, that the truth of your word will touch hearts where you would have them touched. I thank you, Lord, for each person in this room today that had a chance to hear what it is that you would have me to share. And I pray, Lord, that you have prepared their hearts and their minds to hear it, and it will make a difference for your kingdom moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.